A couple of weeks ago, we began a series on recalculating, understanding that as we go through life, many times we set our GPS on what we think will be happiness and fulfillment and purpose in life, and then as we head in that particular direction, things happen. Obstacles come in our path, and all of a sudden we have to recalculate and head a different direction. Or sometimes we come into an intersection, and we hit an intersection to where we thought that we were supposed to go left, but then something else has spoken to our heart, and we recalculate and we go right. All throughout our lives, we will be like the GPS in your car and on your phone, having uh, recalculating moments. And so we talked about recalculating in life's direction and even re-talk, recalculating when, when health situations come and just those things that, are, that we don't understand. And then today I want to talk about recalculating our preconceptions of God. Recalculating preconceptions of God. Now, preconception, let me give you a definition. It's an opinion or a conception formed in advance of adequate knowledge or experience. One more time. It is an opinion or a conception that's formed in advance of adequate knowledge or experience. So I'm already got, uh, got my mind made up, and yet I don't have all the facts in. I remember when I was young and, and my parents, uh, my mom would always cook dinner for us and we always would have meat and we would have vegetables. And so I got to where I would eat vegetables and, and even like them until she introduced something that was called turnip greens. And, and, and the first time I saw turnip greens, I realized that earlier that day, my dad had just cut the grass. And I thought this was just left over from the bag and, and I had done something wrong and this is what I'm supposed to eat. So I had a, a preconception that you just don't eat turnip greens. That's some nasty stuff. But you know, as I've gotten older and I began to eat the turnip greens, especially you put a little pepper sauce on them, <laughs> man, that's good eating. And, and so I like turnip greens. I remember the, the preconception that college students have about what it's like to step into the adult world. Had an opportunity to teach at Sanford and uh, was an adjunct professor there teaching a, a managerial values class. And every class I taught, it never failed. The students would, uh, that I would interact with would talk and say, yeah, man, I, I can't wait till I get out of college because then I got a bunch of free time and um, I'm gonna get that first job and I'll have to study and it's gonna be great. And I just had to look him in the eye and say, this is the most free time you will ever have. Enjoy this. They said, oh, no, yes, yes. And then it's so much fun to talk to them. A couple years later, they've graduated from college. They've got their first job. And they said, they're working me to death. I can hardly breathe. I said, do you wish you had that free time at college? Yes. You see, it's those preconceptions. And we all have it. And whether it be preconceptions about food that we eat or preconceptions about adult life and what's the next step, we also have preconceptions about God. Preconceptions about how God should act, what he should do, and how he should do it. And there is a great account in the Old Testament of a prophet named Elisha and a Syrian commander of the army by the name of Naaman. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter five. 2 Kings chapter five. Now. With this, we're just going to walk right through this story and get you an understanding of a man who had some preconceptions about God and how God should work. 
It starts out in the first verse. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now, Syria was in competition with Israel. I mean, they were in a point to where they'd still have some battles along the way, and it was still an uneasy relationship. And the king was by the name of a guy by the name of Ben Hadad. And Ben Hadad was the king. He had been a great warrior, but as he got older, he turned those warrior responsibilities over to a man by the name of Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the armies. Just look at the way they described him. He was a great man. He had high favor. I mean, he was a man of valor, a man of stature. And everything was great until you get to this next sentence. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, leper is a skin disease during that time that came in different forms. Oftentimes, when we think about lepers and look in the New Testament, it's always usually at the uh, final stages to where pieces of a, of, of a person's body are, are being uh, are, are falling off and, and, and being kind of almost eaten away. And, but there are different stages. And for him, it was probably a lighter stage of leprosy because he was still doing his job. But there was always that fear that what was in a lighter stage could kick into a more serious stage. And so that was something that was always hanging over his head. Well, all of a sudden you come to verse two and it says, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Every so often they would make raids into Israel and when they did, they'd bring some back to be captives and slaves. This particular girl was assigned to Naaman's household. And he said, she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now this is a young girl. I mean, she could be, uh, uh, could be a teenager or even younger. And while she's working in this household and she knows that Naaman has leprosy, she just makes the comment. She said, boy, if he would just go to Samaria and go see the prophet from, from that area where I'm from, he could heal him of that leprosy. Now, this is a young girl who is living in a country who worships foreign gods. This is a girl who doesn't have a small group. She doesn't have anyone around her that are other believers that are building her up. This is a young girl who could say something about the holy God of Israel, and they could take her out. I mean, she, she's got no safety net. But in a bold move, and because of compassion for them, she says, you know, I know a man that can take care of that. I know a man that can take care of that. Well, he took her word, and he goes to the king. Look in verse four. So Naaman went in, and he told his lord, that was the king, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. He said, this is what she said, and she's from Israel, so she should know. Well, I, I, I like the king. Man, he jumps right up, and, he's, and the king of Syria said, go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. He says, let's go. If she says someone can heal you, let's go. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. Now, I just need to let you know, just for some of you that may be reading this for the first time, when he took 10 changes of clothes, that was not for himself. That was a gift that he was to give to the king. So for those of you who, when you go on a weekend trip, you pack two suitcases full, this is not your life verse, all right? Are we just clear on that? I'm just trying to solve some arguments that may happen in the household, and I'll be getting lots of emails saying, Danny, is this what that verse means? 
It's not changes of clothes for him. It is gift to give to the king. So the thought is, if, if somebody is going to heal you, we probably need to pay them. We need to compensate them for their work. So bring all of these things to the king. And he says, and I will even write a letter. In verse six, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, pretty clear. You got the letter, you got the entourage, you got all the great gifts. You go to Samaria, which is the capital. You go to the palace where the king is, and you present him this letter. And when he gets the letter, verse seven, and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. What is he saying? Well, I don't think that's the, the response that Naaman was expecting, that when he gives the guy the letter, he rips his clothes. Whenever a person during that day would rip their clothes, that means something outrageous has happened. And when he rips his clothes, it's like, uh-oh, I don't, what did the king put in that letter? And where he got so upset is he is in essence <clears throat> is saying, what the heck does that king of Syria think I can do? Does he think I can bring people to life? He thinks I can heal people? Is he just setting me up to have another quarrel so they can come in here and do battle with us again? And so he's really upset about this. And so while he's upset, it doesn't stay right there in the little palace. Because when he does this, it's a pretty public thing because word begins to spread that the king has torn his clothes. And when the king tears his clothes, that's not good for anybody because that means he's angry and something's, something's gonna happen and somebody's gotta pay. Well, then you come to verse eight. And this may be one of my favorite verses just, just in this whole story. He says, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. So word got around Elisha. The prophet, he hears about it. He sent to the king saying, now this is his letter that he sent to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? I just like that. <laughs> I mean, this is the most powerful man in all of Samaria, in all of Israel. And he says, so why have you torn your clothes? Why have you torn your clothes? And look what he says. Let him come now to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. Why are you tearing your clothes? Why are you all upset about this? Hey, you know that God in Israel, the one that you keep rejecting? The God of Israel, he's the one that can heal this man. Send him to me. And when you send him to me, then he will know that there is a God in Israel. Hey, verse nine. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. So Naaman got the address of where Elisha lived and he takes his whole entourage with him and he goes over there and he comes to his house and he knocks on his door. Now he knocks on his door and in verse 10, and Elisha did not come to the door. He sent a messenger, a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Pretty easy, pretty simple. Elisha just stayed back in the bedroom, sent a messenger to him, said, hey, go to the Jordan River, you dip seven times, and by the time you come out of there, you'll be clean and you'll be restored. Now, 
your first thought is that he'd say, good, this looks like something that's not too difficult. This is where preconceptions come in. And in verse 10, in verse 11, but Naaman was angry. Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and he went away in a rage. He had preconceptions. I mean, he had traveled all the way from Damascus all the way to Samaria, and while he's traveling, he's rehearsing this in his mind as to what he sees is, is going to happen. And he tells you what he expected. This is what I expected. I expected that when I found the prophet of God, first of all, I thought he would be there in the palace with the king, but that's okay. I recalculated and went down to, the, uh, to one of the residential areas over here. And then when I knocked on his door, I thought for sure that he would come out and see me. I mean, he's the prophet, he's the man, and I'm the man, he should come to me. I'm used to people showing deference to me. I'm used to people honoring me. I'm a very powerful man in Syria, did you not know that? And that I thought for sure he would come and look me in the eyes face to face. And, and as one uh, commentator said, that he even was probably thinking that, that there would be this prophet and all of his attendants would come and they would stand around him. And, and maybe we could even not be in a residential section, but we could be right there where the capital was, right there around the palace. And, and we could stand outside and word could spread that one of the most powerful men in all of Syria is here to be healed and crowds could gather. And then this man of God, he said, if he could just step out there and then he would call out to his God, and as he called out to his God, he would then wave his hand over my leprosy. And then I'd be healed. It sounded like it made sense. This is exactly the way God should work. But you know what he did? Elisha didn't even come to the door. He just sent a messenger. And you know what he told me to do? He told me to go to the Jordan River. Jordan River is not this pristine, beautiful river. Hadn't been for years and then today. It's muddy, it's discolored, and he wants me to go into those muddy waters of the Jordan River and do this silly thing of dipping seven times and then all of a sudden I'm going to be healed. What's up with that? If all it takes is dipping in water, why don't we go back up to Damascus where the water is better, fresher, cleaner, and purer? If muddy water can wash away leprosy for sure, clean water can do it even better. It's preconception. Now he got angry in verse 11. And the more he talked about it, and the more he thought about it, anger turned to rage. And he left the house and he began to travel back to Damascus. And he was traveling back to Damascus and it says in verse 12, and he turned and he went away in a rage. Well, thank goodness for people that work in an organization that are a little bit clearer headed. And in verse 13 it says, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, that's not a, a daddy relationship, that's uh, respect. My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash? and be clean? 
He said, the whole purpose of this trip was for you to be healed of leprosy. And did not the prophet tell you, I can do that? And he told you how to do it? Shouldn't you do that? And so for right there, he's really looking at Naaman and said, you know, you've got to get over your preconceived ideas as to what this whole healing thing was going to be about. You've got to be able to swallow your pride and trust the man of God that what he said is what this God of Israel wants you to do and then see if this healing works. Give it a shot. And so while they're traveling back to Syria, all of a sudden, he makes the decision to recalculate. And when he recalculates, he takes a turn and says, let's head over to the Jordan River. And he goes to the Jordan River. And in verse 14, it says, so he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. He goes down in, can't you see him? They get there, all that's there is the entourage. There's no one else, it's just that group he brought with him and he steps down this nasty kind of murky, <laughs> dirty water of the Jordan River and in his mind, you almost can be guaranteed that he's thinking, what's up with this? I just really think this thing's gonna work. I'm gonna give it a shot. So he goes under one, goes under two. And after he came down the second time, don't you know he took a look at his skin? Not getting any better. Went down three, went down four, went down five, comes back up. No change. It's the same. He could have left right then. This is silly. I don't, why am I even doing this? But he says, you know, I'm going to go. I'm going the whole route. So it goes down six. So it goes down the sixth time. And he comes up. And there's no change. And everyone is and just in his entourage. And they're kind of holding their breath too. Because they're saying, they said seven. And we all thought this was kind of an odd way of doing things. But... We'll see. Seven. He goes under. He comes back up. Now, all of a sudden, when he comes back up, he takes a look at his skin, and it said it's as fresh as like a newborn baby, just like a child. It worked. It worked. <laughs> I can't believe it. It worked. And he comes out of the water, and he is cleansed, and he could just begin to head back to Damascus, but he didn't. He recalculated. Because this was something that was so great and there was such a change that took place, he had to go back. He had to go back. And he had to go back and he had to go see this prophet and tell him what had happened. Now before he goes back, I just want you to think for just a moment. If we were there and we had begun to see this thing unfold and we were in Samaria and we heard Elisha say, oh, you don't need to be in the big city, just go over to Jordan and go dip seven times, or his servants say to do that. I know I, I would have disagreed with that. I would have said, whoa, 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 no. We got a great opportunity. This is a powerful man. Let's bring him right here to the city square. 
And then, you know, when we get Elisha here, he's been taking a lot of heat from the king because the king does not approve of his God and doesn't approve of the things he says. So what if he stood right here and he called upon God and he healed this man? What would that look like? I mean, this thing's going to explode on social media because everybody will know about Naaman and they're going to know about this healing. And when that happens, the awe and the wonder and the power of God would be shown. This is the way it should happen. This is how you should do it, God. And then the other thing is we can kind of thick our chest out and say, hey, our God's better than your God. You've been in Syria all these years worshiping that false God. How was that leprosy doing there? Yeah, not good. Hey, come here. Our God, he heals your leprosy. Nah, 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 nah. We got a better God. And we're boasting about our great God. This is the way it should be. God, this is how you do it. This is my preconception as to how it should work. But you see, what we gotta understand is God was more concerned with Naaman's heart than he was with his new skin. And he said, Naaman needs to have a new heart more than he needs to have new skin. And so he led Elisha to deal with the most pressing problem that Naaman had, and that was his pride, and that was his hardened heart. And so with no crowds around him, but just his entourage, he had an opportunity to take in the magnitude of what just happened. And in the muddy, murky waters of the Jordan River, God not only removed the disease from his skin, but he removed the scales from his eyes, and he broke his hardened heart. And he did it to such a point that he made a declaration in verse 15 where he said, there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. You see, it was more important than just getting a healing of his skin. And on the surface, if you and I had been there, that's what we would have seen was the greatest need, but that wasn't the greatest need. You see, the greatest need was the heart of Naaman. The greatest need was for him to overcome his pride and to be introduced to the true God. And God's the one that said, I'm not going the way that you guys think it should go. I've got my own way of doing these things. And so, a little recalculation came in verse 15. In verse 15, look what he says. He says, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he says, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. He wanted to still pay him. Elisha turns him down and says, no, hey, I'm just the instrument. God's the one that did, did the healing. And he said, but I'm willing to do this change, this recalculating. Let me just put it in, your pers in a perspective on that. David, you've got a map that you can show us up here of, uh, of this area, all right, with a handy dandy. See Damascus? We got Damascus. And you see Samaria right here. See Samaria? See the Jordan River? Right there. Now just think about this man. He came down to Samaria. That's where he was. He made that long trip from Damascus. And then he says, I gotta go back. I mean, he, he said, I'm not going to do this Jordan River thing. So when he heads back, he's got to kind of cross that river somewhere. So as he's traveling, all of a sudden, he crosses it, let's say, up in here. The healing takes place. And it'd be real easy for him just to keep on going. But he didn't. He came back to Samaria. Now, he was about a fourth of the way back home. And he said, I don't care. We're going to recalculate. And the reason is, is because I need to go back and I want to see this man of God and I want to let him know that I understand who his God is. But then he came to him and he says, there's a couple things I want to ask you. 
And in verse 17, he came and he says, and Naaman said, if you don't take any goods from me, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. And so there was a thought that he would take some dirt from Israel and take it with him, take it back home to Damascus, go to his backyard, put the dirt out there, and that is where he would worship God and would make sacrifices to the one Jehovah God. And in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. What he says is a part of my job is I'm with the king, and the king wants to go worship this false god. I've got to go with him. He leans on my arm, and when he bows down, is it okay if you know that I'm doing this uh, to, to support my king, but I'm not worshiping that god? I am still worshiping the only true God. And then Elijah said, yes, go in peace. And freed him up and said, go in peace. Preconceptions. Wow. He had a preconception about whole, this whole healing, how everything should have taken place. And it turned out different. And because it turned out different, there was a lot of anger and there was a lot of rage. Jesus' entire ministry started with preconceptions. The Jewish leader said there will be a Messiah that will come and he'll be a military ruler and he'll take us out from uh, under the control of Rome. That was their preconception. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus, a humble, suffering servant who was willing to go to the cross to die for their sins and to give them an opportunity to spend eternity with God in heaven. But because of their preconceptions, and he didn't fit in with their preconceptions, they resulted in anger and rage and had him killed. There were preconceptions that on that, on that Friday when he was crucified on a cross and he took his body down, that that's the end of everything. But then they didn't get wait around for all the facts, and that is that three days later he was raised from the dead, and when he was raised from the dead, then it changed everything because he had victory over death, he had victory over sin, and he could provide that bridge to help us get to God. Today, preconceptions shackle us, and we get angry at God, we doubt his love, we doubt his mercy, and we doubt his power. Because we've prayed for things, and we said, this is how you need to do it, God. And I've laid it out for you. And when he doesn't do it that way, it just makes you angry. Gets you upset. Martin Luther, over 500 years ago with the Reformation, made this statement. He says, our preconceptions of God are unreliable and confused. And like a broken bone, which is set incorrectly, these preconceptions must be broken before they can be healed. And he says, the word of the cross reveals the gulf between the preconceived and the revealed God. The preconceived God and the revealed God, and the cross is what bridges those. Because you see, when you take a look at the cross, you realize that, that sin is more serious than we thought, and that God's love for us is greater than we imagined. Sin is more serious than we thought, and God's love is greater than we imagined. And so we need to break some preconceptions. And when we break those preconceptions, it will free us up, not to be angry and at rage with God, but to be more trusting of him. So let me just close with this. 
I just made a list of some things we need to break. Are you ready? Number one, our preconceptions of how God should work and should answer prayer. Our preconceptions, we need to break this. Our preconceptions of how God should work and should answer prayer. We need to break our preconceptions that we have of God, of how he should work and how he should answer prayer. Every one of us has preconceptions of how God should work to meet our needs and the needs of others. And we say this, oh God, if he could just meet the right girl, then everything would be fine. Oh God, if she could just find the right job, then everything would be fine. Oh God, if you could just move the family closer to us, uh, here in Birmingham, then everything would be fine. Oh God, if my adult children would just listen to what I'd have to say, then everything would be fine. Uh, oh God, if my child could only make the ball team, then his or her life would be complete. And on and on, we pray these things. And I'm, I'm gonna come back to you in just a moment. I don't have a problem with specific prayer. What I do say is we need to realize that God has a view that we do not. And he has a greater concern for a person's soul and not just them getting their act together. And too often we just want someone to get their act together. And so we pray to God and say, God, if you can meet these three criteria and just do these in this order, everything's gonna be fine. Listen, God's view is way above that. He's more concerned about a person's soul. He knows each person's greatest need. And for Naaman, physical healing was good, but most important, was the healing of his soul. And that's why God did not do exactly what Naaman wanted to do. That's why God took him down the road he took him because he knew his greatest need was to break that pride and break that hardened heart and only at that point did he see Jehovah God. So now in order to break those preconceptions, you need to acknowledge three things. Just write these three things down real quick. Number one, God proves his love for all people by the cross. God proves his love for all people by the cross. Do not sit there and say, well, apparently God doesn't love this person as much or don't love me as much because they're not answering the prayers. I want him to answer the way that I want him to answer. No, you need to put that off on the table. God's already on record for his love for us so we went to the cross to die for our sins. That's number one. Number two, God's ways are higher than our ways. If the scripture says that God's ways are higher than our ways. That means he, his, he knows things that we don't know, and he cares for people in a way that even that we don't care for. It is fine to pray specific prayers, but keep in mind that God's ways are higher than our ways and always be open in attitude and expectation that God can work in ways differently than what we think. So don't walk out of here and say, well, Pastor Danny said I'm not supposed to pray specifically. No, you pray specifically. You pray as you feel as God's leading you, and, and as you pray, you, it's almost to the point where you say, God, not my will, but your will. And I want to know, God, I really think this is what this person needs, but if it's something different, I am open. And I'm not gonna be in rage and anger because it's not working out the way I want it to work out. I trust you enough, Lord. You have them in your hand, and I'm going to trust you for that. I'm gonna trust you for that. And I'm gonna keep praying, and I think and specific prayers are good because sometimes it goes to the third point is that God can use you. God can use you as an answer to prayer. And when I'm praying something specific for someone, all of a sudden if somebody's looking for a job and, and they're going through difficult times and I'm praying specifically they'll find a job, 
It could be me that trips over one that says, hey, this is an opening over here. I'll call you, and uh, maybe this is where you need to work, and that may be the perfect match. I'm just telling you, you can pray specific, but do not get so fixed in to say, God, this is the only way that you can work to make this situation right. Because we'll just end up in rage and anger. Number two is this. We need to break our preconceptions of the status of the person God uses. We need to break our preconceptions of the status of the person God uses. You say, what do you mean by that? If you look at Naaman, when Naaman would come to Shades Mountain Baptist Church and give his testimony, his salvation testimony would be circled around interesting individuals. It started with a little girl who was a slave in his household who shared about a man in Samaria, in Israel, that could heal him. And then, as he travels over there, there is a prophet who's not even on the payroll. He thought it'd have to be someone on the payroll. This is a prophet that even the king doesn't like. And it's an out-of-country prophet who's in disfavor with the king. He's the guy that told me what to do. But it wasn't him, it was a messenger of his. Some errand boy tells me what to go do. And then when I bowed up and said I didn't want to do it, it was one of the guys in my organization who came to me and said, hey, boss, I got to tell you, I think you're being pretty prideful about this. I think you need to take him up on it. You see, it was people of all different status. And Naaman is this powerful man, and yet every person that's below him were people that fed into his life and helped him get to that point to make that decision. So no matter how young you are or how old you are, God can use you in amazing ways to bring others to him. And the last thing that we need to break is our pride and seek humility. Break our pride and seek humility. Matthew 18, three through four, Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Talks about we gotta humble ourselves. And so folks, one of the things that we have to do is we have to break our pride. Because oftentimes I think I know what is best in certain situations, even better than God. And in order for this situation to work out, this is the ABCs that need to happen. Just being prideful. And then when God works a little different way, sometimes it causes me anger. And I say, I just don't, I just don't see that. It seems like it should be working this way. I've just got to trust him. I've got to trust him. And whatever areas in my life when there's pride and whatever areas in your life to where there's pride, we've got to constantly be praying, God, show me what those areas are and break me of that. And then every one of us can seek humility What's interesting, when you seek humility, you know what Jesus said? Look at, look at that again, that verse. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now let me ask you this. If you were a coach and you had a player on your team who was the greatest athlete, would you put him in? Yeah. If you were an employer and you said, this is the greatest worker I've got, would you give them some responsibility? Yeah. If you are humble and then Jesus says you're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, do you think God's gonna use you? What do you think? Yes, all right. One is yes, two is no. <laughs> One, yeah. It's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
He wants to use you in an unbelievable way. And so what you do is you recalculate your life. You say, I'm no longer going to go down the, this pathway that's this built around pride in myself. I'm going to recalculate. And so I'm not worried about selfish gain. I'm worried about kingdom impact. I'm not worried about gathering and storing, but I'm about giving and sharing. I'm not about what will make me look the best, but what will give Jesus more honor and glory. I'm gonna recalculate my life. And I'm gonna break some of these re, uh, preconceptions that I've got about God. And I want to break that pride that's in my life and I want to be used by him, a humble servant to be used by God. And when you do that, you're going to hear ringing in your ears, recalculating, recalculating. And for some of you, this is a huge day for you because the preconceptions you've had about God and how you thought he should have worked in something has just been eating at you for years. And there's anger and there's rage at God. Now, I'm not telling you that you're gonna be able to understand everything that goes on in life. I sure don't. But I think when things like this happen, it causes me to go back to God's word and go back to God and answer the question, do you trust me? And I gotta trust him. And say, God, forgive me for imposing my will on yours and saying, this is the way this should have happened. And help me to be satisfied with dipping in the murky waters of the Jordan River seven times. Doing the thing that you've asked me to do that may seem different, but I'm gonna trust you. And what God says is when we do that, when we come walking out of there, it says, hey, you'll be clean. Not just your skin, but your heart. Your heart will no longer be hardened. The scales are from your eyes, and you see me in a whole new way. And that's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so prone to tell you how to do your work. And Lord, we get shackled with these preconceptions, and the result of that is anger and rage. And I pray that today will be a, be a freeing day for many of us, that we can look back to you and say, God, I just gotta trust you, and I wanna recalculate. And if there are areas of pride in, in lives here, I pray, Lord, you bring that to the surface and that you begin to damage those and just destroy those. And that there would be that humility and that willingness to seek you with all their heart. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.